If you would, take your Bible, open it to the book of Titus. We're going to continue to go verse by verse through the book of Titus. And we are going to look at verses 9 through 16 in the book of Titus. And a subtitle under the series title as we go through the book of Titus, which is grace and godliness is the overall theme, is holding firm in the faithful word. We have a second address to pastors and elders and teachers about their job, their role, and uh, the emphasis here after it deals with the character of a man who's to take this office is it deals with his ability to teach and hold firm to sound doctrine. I came across a story that illustrates the point. It's written in a commentary by R. Kent Hughes and Brian Chappell. They write the following. His research made him famous. Max Sherman, a scientist who studies energy efficiency in buildings, had examined the effectiveness of various sealants for heating and air conditioning ducts. He came up with a startling conclusion, first reported on the web, then rapidly picked up in the Wall Street Journal, the Associated Press, and a host of broadcast media. Sherman's news was, the mo- was that most of the duct sealants on the market worked well, with one notable exception, duct tape. Anybody use duct tape out there? And just a few days after its application, reported Sherman, duct tape failed reliably and often catastrophically. News shows and interviewers began to pick up the story, and Sherman was interviewed, and the following exchange is recorded in this commentary. Interviewer, how did duct tape get its name? Sherman, I don't know. Interviewer, what can you use it for? Sherman, anything but ducks. (laughs) Interviewer, Do you use duct tape? Sherman, all the time, just not on ducks. What made Sherman's uh, duct tape discovery newsworthy, of course, was that the product that our society, society jokingly refers to as the force that holds the universe together, while good for many functions, could not fulfill the one purpose for which it was designed. Interesting, isn't it? And as we go through the pastoral epistles, we're going to look at The purpose of a pastor. One of the main purposes of a pastor is a teaching ministry. He is to use the duct tape illustration to hold firmly to that which is trustworthy. He's to hold it up. He's to share it with the people because that is what will hold the church together and hold us firmly to the head, which is Christ. Let's pray. Father God, as we look at this section now, we just pray that you would lead us and guide us by your Holy Spirit you'd remind us that the whole foundation of what we're going to read is grace, that we're saved by grace, that grace teaches us to do certain things. And one of the things that grace teaches us to do, Lord, is to impart the gospel of hope, the good news of Jesus Christ, his death, his resurrection, his glorious uh, ministry now to the church through a throne of grace to his people. And Lord, we pray that you would add and take away from what I've prepared so that you would speak and that your servants would have ears to hear what you would say to us, Lord. We lay this time at your feet and pray that you would bless it. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Now I touched last time that, um, touched on the fact last time that it seems to me that there's a lot of places in the modern church where you kind of start to wonder if pastors have read the pastoral epistles. I told you that epistle is just another name for a letter, And it was written specifically to leaders of the church. Leaders of the church are here instructed as to how they should lead. 
And one of the primary emphasis of the text is that a leader, elder, pastor in the church, his primary role is to be a teacher. This is the way that he equips the saints. This is the way that he helps people to grow. And he does that by teaching that which is firm. He is, Titus 1.9, to hold fast, pick it up with me, Titus 1.9, to hold fast the faithful word, the word is faithful, and he is to be faithful, which is in accordance with the teaching, that he may be able to exhort in sound doctrine, that word sound is a word where we get hygienic or healthy, healthy doctrine, and to refute those who contradict. So this is the foundation of what we're going to look at now is the role of a pastor is to exhort or encourage in healthy doctrine. The opposite of healthy doctrine is unhealthy doctrine. In fact, we would argue that there are some teachings that are afoot in the modern church that are not only unhealthy, they are downright poisonous to people because they poison people to the truth. It is the truth that gives us firmness. It is the truth that is our foundation. But if people begin to compromise the truth, then, of course, it infects and affects the body. The elder must be firm in what is firm. He must show loyalty to the truth, because in showing loyalty to the truth, he shows loyalty to Christ. And for you and me, as people who have been saved by the grace of God, we know what our purpose is. You don't have to guess at your purpose. We are to live for the honor of Christ. We are to live for the loyalty of Christ. And as we are loyal to the truth, we are loyal to the one who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So the message that we preach is leading people to the one who can give us ultimate freedom. What we find out in this particular section, as we look at verses 10 and 11, if you take a peek for a second, there are many rebellious men. Jesus said there, are, there will be many false prophets, many false teachers, not just a few. Notice verse 10, there are many rebellious men, empty talkers, deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, who must be silenced because their words have an impact. And here's the impact. They're upsetting whole families, teaching things that they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. What these men are doing is they're teaching false doctrine, but the false doctrine is literally upsetting whole households. There are some authors that comment on this passage that say households could be house churches. Their false doctrine is permeating churches or families or both to the degree, here's the Greek language, that they are literally overturning families and churches. And I thought of a capsized boat here. I thought of a family riding in a boat and all of a sudden that boat is turned over and that family is in jeopardy or peril. This has happened on many occasions where people come in, they'll come in with a false doctrine or an empty doctrine based upon deceit or the motive is gain and all of a sudden it begins to cause division in the church. We're talking about things that are uh, attacks on the essentials of the faith. I'm not talking about peripheral doctrines, things that are debatable matters. But if someone goes in and tries to redefine how one is saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, plus nothing, if they begin to mess with the deity of Christ, the nature of God, the bodily resurrection, all these essential Christian doctrines, then it is a huge issue. And many times what has happened, and this is the the kind of the um, stream that Paul's dealing with, 
is that in Paul's day, what was happening is people were teaching a gospel plus message. They were saying, yeah, you're saved by Jesus Christ plus this, this, and this. It takes on many faces today. People come along and they say, okay, yeah, this whole teaching about the grace of God is fine, but you have to be baptized by our minister and our baptismal according to our formula or you're not saved. I met a girl at a golf course uh, some years back and she was working behind the counter. We were a group with a group of golfers and I began to try to witness to her and I said, do you know the Lord? Do you have any church background? And she said, I will never step foot in a church again. And I was like, Why? She goes, because I grew up in a church where if you wore makeup, you're going to hell. If you wore a dress, you're going to hell. If you danced, you're going to hell. If you see certain movies, you're going to hell. If you listen to secular music, you're going to hell. She said, I grew up in this kind of uh, setting and I don't want to step foot in a place like that again. And I tried to reassure her and I tried to say to her, look, that's not... What you experience, I'm sorry for that, but that's not the case in all churches. And you could just see it kind of deflecting off of her. She had had a very bad experience. I was talking to someone after first service, and even though we're saved by grace and we realize that it's 100% paid in full by the finished work of Christ, grace is a hard thing for all of us to get our arms around, isn't it? Sometimes it's a hard thing to let it really sink into your soul that you are as saved as you're ever going to be right now if you are a Christian. You cannot add one thing to the perfection of Jesus Christ. You cannot be more righteous in God's eyes than you are right now if you're a Christian. Because Jesus said from the cross, it is finished, paid in full. You are a forgiven man or woman, righteous in the eyes of God. Now, should you try to improve in your practical righteousness? Yes. Should you try, because of the grace of God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, to become more godly? Yes. That's going to be the point as the book unfolds. But you cannot have the foundation wrong. If, as a believer, according to the book of Romans, you have the righteousness of Jesus Christ, put into your account by your faith in Him, can you be any more righteous than the righteousness of Jesus Christ? Answer is no. Now practically, we do want to become more like Him. We want to become more godly in our activity and behavior. There's no doubt about it. But right now, you are 100% pure in the eyes of your Father because Jesus Christ satisfied God's wrath on the cross in full and Jesus lived the perfect life, satisfied the law in full, and because you are in Christ, that is your status before Almighty God. And that is what Paul went around the Roman world preaching, a gospel of grace to Jew and Gentile alike, that you're saved by grace, and grace means, remember, a free gift, unmerited favor, through the channel of faith. This is not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. It is not a result of works, so that no one should boast. But there were people in the first century, and they probably were well-meaning people as a whole, at least some of them, and they were saying, you know what, oh, that sounds good, but here's what you have to do now. And this would come into the area of food. So you've got to keep the certain food laws, or you have to go through circumcision, or you have to show up on certain days, or fast on certain days, or wear this clothing, or don't wear that clothing. And they were adding to the gospel. And they weren't just saying it for matters of practical righteousness. They were saying 
that your standing before God is based upon whether or not you do the things that they are stating you should do. And they were ruining whole families. And this was falling into a category which we often define as legalism. That is, that people were beginning to judge other people based upon standards that God wouldn't even uh, hold them to in the sense of their standing before Him. So, the man of God is to teach the whole truth of God. This will sanctify the saints. Psalm 19.7 says, The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Psalm 138, verse 2, God says, I, Through David, I will bow down toward thy holy temple and give thanks to thy holy name for thy loving kindness and thy truth, for thou hast magnified thy word according to all thy name. So, uh, Proverbs 30, verse 5 says, Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. So the pastorate, or the elder, the primary tool by which we help people experience freedom, experience God as their shield, know their identity in Christ is the Word of God. Sometimes I will use stories and humor to bring a little extra color to the canvas or illustrate a word or a point. But my main tool is the Word of God. Because the Word is a lamp to our feet and what? A light to our path. It is alive. It has the power to transform our lives and to reassure us and give us hope in a world that is filled with hopelessness, in a world that needs to know the truth of the Word of God. And so the pastor teaches the Word, and he always comes back because the whole Bible is really about Christ. So he comes back to the one uh, who is Jesus Christ. Now look at verse 10. It's a connecting word for, the, the word in Greek is gar. There are many rebellious men Empty talkers and deceivers. Doesn't it seem like there are many, there always seems to be many, <laughs> many lies, many false things going on. There are many, I want you to notice in the verse, rebellious men. At the heart of their false teaching or doctrine is rebellion. Rebellion against what? Re rebellion against the Word of God or re rebellion against the God of the Word. They simply don't want to obey Him so they come up with other schemes and other gadgets and other methods to try to do church. This happened in Chicago, where a well-meaning group of people, some several decades ago now, saw that some churches were dying in their attendance. So they went and did door-to-door -door surveys. Their intentions were good. They wanted to find out why people weren't coming to church. So they would go to Mr. and Mrs. John Q. Smith, non-churchgoer, probably unbeliever, and they would say, why don't you go to church? And the response would be, well, the sermons are too long. And all God's people said, shh. <laughs> what do you mean sermons are too long? <laughs> right? They would say, I don't want to hear anything about hell. Don't mention hell and I'll come. Some people would say, what I really want to see is when you guys do potlucks, I'd really like to see Polish sausage there. <laughs> all right? Not just regular hot dogs. Other people would say, I really like ping pong. Could you guys do ping pong tournaments there? And not to leave the ladies out. Could you guys, could you guys do stuff with fashion or whatever? And all of a sudden, the, the people said, hey, okay, taking the survey. So if we do these things, would you come? Well, yeah, twice a year on Easter and Christmas, right? So they began to shape the church to the wants and the whims of unbelievers with the intention of winning them to Christ. 
Now here's a key distinction that you need to understand. And I, this was uh, made clear and it came out on a radio program hosted by Greg Kokel. It's called Stand to Reason. A woman called the program and she said these words. She said, look, I go to this church and they're wonderful people. They have a real heart for the gospel, but the church has shifted and there's 20-minute sermonettes. And you know what sermonettes create? Christianettes, right? And, and they're not really getting into the substance of the word. And I feel like I'm so hungry when I go to church, but I'm not getting it at my church. So what should I do? Here's my plan. You tell me what I should do, Greg. My plan is to go to the leadership of the church. And I've been praying about this. And maybe God wants me to stay there so I can become a change agent in the church. So I can convince the leadership to change their methodology. And Greg's response was this. He said, look, every church should be seeker-sensitive. If I see a seeker comes through the door, I'm going to be sensitive to their presence here. I would like them to hear the truth and know the truth. And if they've ended up here, then we want to make sure they feel the love of Christ and hear the truth of the gospel. But a lot of churches are not seeker-sensitive. They are seeker-centered. Everything they do is for the seeker. And what happens is 95% of the church that's sitting there is born again, hungry to know Christ better, and they are told, you must sacrifice for the potential 5% unchurched and unbelievers that walk into church because we have Polish sausage on the barbecue afterwards. Everybody know what I'm saying now? It's not an issue to be seeker-sensitive, but if you are seeker-sensitive, what happens is that the church who needs the Word of God is not given what they need to be equipped. And so they suffer for the sake of this so-called 5% vocal majority. (laughs) And so here's what Paul says. He says, look, there are many rebellious men And they are, look at verse 10, they are empty talkers. The Greek here has the idea of their message has no substance. Have you ever been in a situation where you listen to someone for a while and you're like, I have no idea what that person just said. (laughs) Hopefully you don't experience that on Sunday mornings, right? Sometimes we are guilty in the church of using too much Christianese, so we have to be careful. The old saying is we have to take the hay down from the loft where the cows can get at it. Everybody know what I'm saying? put the cookie on the bottom shelf, all that stuff. Look, sometimes pastors can be accused of using too much technical language. Forgive me if I do that sometimes, but I live in that world. I'm always studying, right? But I think it's good if you are challenged as a Christian. Even if some things go over your head, it's bound to hit the person sitting behind you. It's not bad that instead of dumbing it down, we actually raise the bar a little in the church. Amen? And say, look, there is a God who is so majestic in His attributes, so incredible in His grace, so multifaceted in His glory, that we would want to go a little deep, wouldn't you say? So that we don't have this mindset that the church is something I do to get in and get out, like a popular restaurant on a Sunday afternoon. I hope that's not what your Christianity is about. I hope it's not just let's get in and get it out so we can get on with our normal everyday life. No, Christ is the center of our life. And that's what godliness is. It's a Christ-centered life. Well, these guys are starting to say, no, 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 no. What you've got to do is this and, and that. One writer says, one of the most serious problems facing the Orthodox Christian Church today is the problem of legalism. Uh, it's a serious problem today, and it was a serious problem in Paul's day. 
Legalism wrenches the joy of the Lord from the Christian believer. And with the joy of the Lord goes his power for vital worship and vibrant service. Nothing is left but cramped, somber, dull, and listless profession. The truth is betrayed, and the glorious name of the Lord becomes a synonym for a gloomy killjoy. The Christian under the law is a miserable parody for the real thing. They say things like this, Why are you wearing that t-shirt? Don't you know who makes that t-shirt? Oh, why do you do that? They, they become these, these, the, the police of your life. They nitpick everything. Do you know there are cultic groups right now today that have people spying on each other? Now, we've thought of that. We've, there's certain individuals. <laughs> right? And they have reports that they write on other people. Oh, so-and-so was at the frozen yogurt place. Glutton. Right? And they write reports on one another. Right? And, and it turns into this thing. Think about how this works now. If the gospel of grace is chucked aside for some legalistic rule-keeping message, then everybody becomes the judgment police. Oh, God probably doesn't love you today. Look what you did. Right? And all of a sudden, instead of a group of people saved by grace and celebrating grace week in and week out, we become the judgment police. Oh, you shouldn't be wearing that. Or you shouldn't be doing that. Now look, it is true that Christians should be doing certain things and not doing certain things, but what should drive us is the glory of the one that saved us. Example, there was a man, young man, he was going to a fellowship. He was struggling with same-sex attraction and pursuing that lifestyle. And so he came to the church and he heard the gospel and he came and the people in the church were loving him. And he gave his life to Jesus Christ. And he called the pastor on a Friday night and he said, Pastor, he said, I've given my life to Christ, but I'm extremely tempted right now. My friends have been calling me to go out and party with them and go back to my old ways. What should I do? And the pastor's response was, what do you think a man who has the righteousness of Christ and has been saved by grace and has a new identity in Christ should do on a Friday night? He didn't say, oh, no, 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 don't, 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 don't. He just said, now that you are in Christ, what do you think you should do? Now that you know who you are, how should you behave? That's what drives the Christian, is I want to do things for the honor of Christ. You know, if you ask the average churchgoer today, why do you go to church on Sunday? You would get a variety of answers. But do you know that one of the main reasons we ought to go to church is for the glory of the one who bought our souls? We should do it for the glory of Christ. Yeah, we benefit and hopefully we're serving. But a Christian under this kind of legalism is a poor parody. And look, when the world looks at it and they see joyless, listless Christians under this dark gloom of legalism, do you think they want a part of it? If, if that's the way that we behave in our lives, like we're always, everywhere we walk in, it's like we're going to the library. Shh, shh, shh. Can't laugh. We don't, we don't laugh around here. Right? Then people begin to get this taste of God that is just wrong. God, one of the fruits of the Spirit is love and joy and peace. Right? Those are the attributes that we should be hopefully uh, showing to the world. These false teachers, because of what they do, verse 11, must be literally muzzled, silenced, because they're upsetting or ruining or overturning. Remember that capsized boat? Whole families teaching things that they should not teach 
for the sake of sordid gain. Here's their motivation. Their motivation is money. They are motivated by gain. And so they package, oftentimes, a prosperity message for their gain, not your gain. You want to measure a ministry? Ask yourself, are you gaining or are they gaining? Now, it is not wrong for a pa- You guys pay the staff of the pastoral and the rest of the, the staff that's here, you pay our salaries. You keep me doing what I'm doing. Instead of having to go out and work, I'm able to study the Bible and minister to people, and that, that is true for this staff. There's nothing wrong with supporting ministry, but when ministry becomes a scheme for gain, personal gain, something like this. You give to my ministry right now. Somebody out there is supposed to give $2,000 to my ministry. And when you do, the Lord spoke to me, God's going to put your, college, your kid through college at no cost to you. The money's just going to come in. Now, how many of you, doing a quick calculation, I have three boys, college age, $2,000 for four years of a university education? Praise the Lord! Where do I sign? Right? A fraction of the cost! This is great. Well, we were doing a radio program one night. We had a panel of pastors on KKLA. An older gentleman calls in. He heard us talking about some of these matters. And he said, he goes, I'm really troubled. We said, what's going on? He goes, I've been giving thousands of dollars to this ministry and they've been making promises to me. One of the pastors said, how much, sir, have you given? He goes, I'm on a, I'm on a fixed income and you know, I'm an older gentleman and I've got... You know, things are tight, but this, this minister was making promises and saying that this would happen for my grandchild, and I've given him $10,000 in the last couple of years. It was obvious that this guy could not afford it. One of the pastors asked him next, has any of the promises that the guy made to you come to pass? The answer, no, not one. Now let me ask you this question. What do you think the Lord of glory is going to say to that pastor on the day of judgment? who put an older gentleman in a tough spot for the sake of his new tie or his hotel room or his shiny new car. See, that is what's going on. The motive is here. It's in the Scripture. What they do is for their gain. They do it for the sake of sordid gain. The New King James actually calls it filthy lucre. They are, they are uh, personally getting the bennies of what they sell to the people. And look, a prosperity message sells. A give-to-get scheme, if I, can, if I give a certain amount and you tell me I'm going to get more back, that appeals to the worst in us, doesn't it? Because, look, I want to give for the glory of the Lord and if He blesses me you know, materially, there, there are principles in Scripture. If you sow sparingly, sparingly, you'll reap sparingly. We know we're supposed to give sacrificially. We know that the Lord will take care of all of our needs according to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus. But if my motive is I give to get something, I give for my own personal gain, then what I've done is I've become God now. Instead of Him being God, and I do what I do for His glory, I give only so that He'll give me the bennies that I want, the frosting on the cake, you name it. This is sold all over the world. It's permeating not only in the United States, but there are third world countries now imbibing this doctrine. And they're told by some people, you just got to speak to your wallet and it'll be filled with money. I've been trying that for years. I just got to talk to it? 
Just speak to your wallet. Oh, you big fat wallet, right? <laughs> but what's happening to me personally is just the opposite. Every time one of my children come up to me, my wallet doesn't get fatter. Can I get a witness? <laughs> it gets thinner. Where are you going now? And what's it going to cost me? Right? This sounds good, but this is repackaged New Age philosophy. A book was flying off the shelves. You probably heard of it. It's called The Secret. It was promoted on Oprah's show. And here's what it is. You just speak to the universe and it gives you back. Well, who is this universe, first of all, that I'm speaking to? Mr. Mr. Universe. And they would say things like this. If you speak the right words into the universe, you can eat that cake and you won't gain weight. <laughs> this is the secret. I don't know if you knew it. I'm telling you now. So you get over your chocolate cake and you say something like this, Mr. Universe, chocolate cake not going to go to my hips, right? Yeah, we're in, a, we're in agreement here, right? Okay, good. Sorry. When I get on the scale the next day, the truth does not <laughs> verify what I've been taught, right? In the secret. Usually, if I eat something, my weight is directly proportionate to my intake. I was telling somebody the other day, I said, Pastor Michael, you look like you, maybe you dropped a few pounds. I said, yeah. I said, I've realized something. There's a direct parallel between the calories I take in and the weight that shows up on the scale. It's a great mystery. Just starting after 50 plus years of life to figure this out. And so, all these promises are made, but it's for their gain and not yours. Look at verse 12. Paul says, one of themselves, remember he's dealing with people on this island of Crete, a prophet of their own, I don't think he was a prophet of God, but he was a prophet in the sense that he spoke on behalf of the people. He was seen as some sort of divine man or some sort of weird title. He said of the Cretans, Cretans are always liars, Evil beasts, lazy gluttons. How do you like that? Titus 1.12, Paul quotes a man named Epimenides. He was an author in 600 BC. Church fathers like Clement of Alexandria, Jerome, Chrysostom, Augustine, all identified the author as a Cretan teacher named Epimenides of Gnosis. And he, he was also quoted by the Apostle Paul in Acts 17 when Paul's in Athens. And he said, we are his offspring, as some of your own poets have said. Well, in one sense, this guy was a prophet for the Cretans. But what he said about the Cretans wasn't too uh, complimentary. He said, Cretans, look at verse 12, are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. came out as I did a little bit more research that this man, Epimenides, wrote the song, Mamas, don't let your babies grow up to be Cretans. <laughs> Why did you guys think that was funny? Mamas, don't let your babies grow up to be cretins. They're lazy gluttons and evil beasts. <laughs> now you might need a little levity at this point. No, it wasn't a song from back in the day. But it is not a very complimentary thing that's said here, right? And apparently this was the reputation that people on the island of Crete had gotten. They were liars, 
evil beasts and they're a bunch of lazy people. You say, why would the Apostle Paul in the New Testament quote some dude from 600 B.C.? Because Paul was saying, basically, what the false teachers do because they're a pack of liars and they do what they do for the sake of sordid gain because apparently they don't want to work. What's true about the region is true of these teachers. Paul does confirm this when he says, this testimony, verse 13, is true. Ouch, Paul. Does he, does he mean that all the Cretans are this way? No, I don't think he's saying that. He's already told Titus to put elders in the churches and describe these godly men. Paul, Paul's not saying, I don't believe in the power of transformation, but I think this is what he's saying. I think he's saying that often where churches exist and false teachers arise, they start to embrace what the culture looks like and teach it in the church. Everybody with me? Oftentimes, instead of the church transforming the culture, the culture transforms the church. Example, a lot of you have studied Revelation 2 and 3. You know, oftentimes when Jesus assesses a church, what's going on in that church often mirrors what's happening in the region where that church is. And so Paul says it's true. This is the reputation of this area, and the false teachers embrace this reputation and prove it. And so Paul says, because this is true, and some writers think that this is a little wry humor on Paul's part, these teachers need to be reproved. It says, reprove them severely, verse 13, that they may be what? Sound in the faith. Whenever you see the idea of a reproof, whether it's behavioral or doctrinal, the hope is that the reproof would bring, very important, restoration. If someone's teaching is off and someone makes an appeal and says, look, man, you're compromising sound Christian doctrine. Don't do that anymore. Some of you know the story of the Worldwide Church of God, Herbert W. Armstrong. There were a lot of false teachings that he promulgated over the airwaves for many years. He passed away. And a segment of the Worldwide Church of God became orthodox because the CRI, the Christian Research Institute, was appealing to them and meeting with them, and a portion of their people got in line with the Orthodox Christian faith. Praise God! Amen? They were open to dialogue, they saw the error of their ways, they measured it against Scripture, and some of them repented and got on an Orthodox track. That, I think, is the heart of verse 13. By the way, whenever we would reprove anybody, our heart is always restoration. It's that someone would get back to the place where there's good teaching going on, healthy teaching going on, so that people can benefit in the right way. Now you might ask, well, what kinds of things were these guys teaching, Pastor Michael? We find in verse 14, they were teaching Jewish myths and commandments of men, and they were, by virtue of this, turning away from the truth. Jewish myths, what are those? Well, we don't know all the details, but we see a little bit more information if you turn just a few pages back to 2 Timothy 4. 2 Timothy 4, Paul gives a charge to Timothy to preach the word in season and out of season. He tells him, 2 Timothy 4, 2, to reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. He says, for the time will come when they will not endure sound, that's the word healthy again there, 2 Timothy 4, 3, doctrine. But wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires, or they will... Raise up teachers who tell them what they want to hear. Captured 
in a song by Fleetwood Mac, Tell Me Lies, Tell Me Sweet Little Lies. I have a little itch right here. Would you, could you scratch that? Oh, yeah. Down a little bit. To the right. When my wife's scratching my back, I, I'll say, to the right, and she'll go. I'll say, your other right, just to mess with her a little bit. Anyway, <laughs> go ahead. I, I'm a little itchy right here. Tell, go ahead. Oh, yeah. That's, yeah, that's what I wanted to hear. Go ahead. Oh, yeah, you got the spot right there. But if you tell them something that maybe didn't scratch an itch, maybe hurt a little bit, oh, you wouldn't believe what I heard today. There was a lady, she was talking to a friend of mine. They were talking about churches, and she said she attended a church in the city. And he said, well, I attend this church, and here's the style of the church. They teach through the Word of God, verse by verse, line upon line, precept upon precept. And uh, we get into the Bible sometimes for 45 minutes to an hour. And the lady went, what? I don't want to go to church and listen to the Bible for an hour. <laughs> well, what did you want to do then? Look, there's a place to be an effective communicator and share stories that help illustrate the point. But if I don't teach you the Bible, I don't know what I'm going to tell you, folks. I'm not that interesting of a person. Oh, <laughs> uh, what do you think about the weather? Or what do you think about... And we find out from 1 Timothy 6, which is something, something that you could write down, that they were into all these genealogies and family trees and, and myths and mysteries. And they would say to people, Oh, I don't know if you know, but you've got to have this knowledge to really end up at the best place in heaven. And... Let's study this family tree for a second. Now, how many of you have tried to read genealogies in the Old Testament? You're like, Lord, help! <laughs> Son of who and who and who? And Well, they would get into these genealogies and they'd say, you see, there's a link right here in the family tree and if you could link to that, then you would be in the secret knowledge and, you would, and you're like, what? No, 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 no. The gospel is very plain. Usually when you read your Bible, it's not that you don't understand. It's not the things in the Bible I don't understand that trouble me. It's the things in the Bible I do understand that trouble me. Amen? And so they would get into all this stuff. And here's one thing they were doing, 1 Timothy 4. Turn over there, 1 Timothy 4. They were saying things like this. And this may surprise some of you, but these are actually doctrines that are demonic. 1 Timothy 4.1 says, The Spirit explicitly says in the latter times some will fall away from the faith. The faith is the true faith, the gospel of Jesus. Paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. By means of the hypocrisy of liars, seared in their own conscience, as with a branding iron, 1 Timothy 4.3, men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude. For it is sanctified by means of the word of God and prayer. So these men were, they had people in their group, and they would say something like this, Oh, you can't get married. What do you mean I can't get married? They would start to advocate doctrines that were the exact opposite, I have wholehearted agreement, <laughs> of what God teaches. Think about it. They were saying to people, you can't get married. Wait a minute, I thought marriage was from God. 
I thought God said, a man, for this cause a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and the two should become what? One flesh. I thought marriage was a picture of Christ and his church. If you have people who are taking teaching platforms and telling you not to do things that God says you should do, exit stage left, run to the nearest exit, do not pass go, do not collect your $200. Don't, what do you mean don't get married? Now there's a gift of singleness, no doubt, but a small percentage have that gift. For most people, you're going to get married. And you should get married. Marriage is a good thing. And they'd say, no. Scientology is being exposed on the A&E channel. So people within the C organization, this is the, their compound in Hemet, are sharing their stories. Some of you have driven by this compound before. It's all fenced up and stuff. And they said, yeah, I was in the C organization. This is their top brass. Sir, they, by the way, they sign a billion-year contract to serve Scientology for a billion years. That's a tough contract, right? <laughs> we ask you to teach Sunday school, people are like, I don't know. <laughs> Billion-year contracts, people. Right? So they say they're, they're working 12 to 14, 16-hour days. They can't even see the person that they've married. And if they have a chance to actually be with their spouse and the wife gets pregnant, they force them to get an abortion. Because they don't want that child to be in the way of their service of the organization. And so women are coming out of Scientology saying, I was forced to have an abortion because they told me that child would be in the way of me giving everything I am to the organization. What in the world is going on? And all of a sudden, they start creating this tension in people. And, and instead of being free in Christ, it's, it's law, 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 no, no, no. And it's pressure, pressure, pressure. And I'll tell you what, there's some people who are telling stories. They were trying to escape the compound and being chased down by guards, forcing them to go back in. Christ said, I will make you free. Right? Freedom is what Jesus wants us to experience. Now look, there are things as a Christian you should do and not do, but it's because you're driven by the grace of God. They don't merit your favor before God or your disfavor. Jesus said, it is not what goes into a person that defiles a person, it's what comes out of a person that defiles a person. So this language that they, they tell you to abstain from foods blessed by God, the Greek here is double-double. Okay, so go ahead and write that down. No, don't write that down. It's, it's actually not true. <laughs> but look, if, if you and I had lunch together, let's turn back to Titus, and I'm going to ruin some of your lunches right now. But let's say, you know, we have a group in a foreign country. Let's say they served us a dish where things were moving on the platter. Okay? This does not thrill me. <laughs> I don't even like sushi, right? <laughs> but anyway, so, but let's say you're, you're hungry and whatever, and you, and you fork that thing, right? And you, and you eat it, the legs are still sticking out of your lip. Right? Would that defile Pastor Michael? The answer is no. I might need a breath mint, but I might not, I'm not, not, might not, I'm not defiled. Why? Because I am clean before God, not by what goes into my body, but who lives in me now. I am saved by grace. 
foods and drinks and clothing have nothing to do with my salvation. Look at verse 15 and we'll finish it up. To the pure, Titus 1.15, all things are pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, notice they are unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their mind and their conscience are defiled. They live in a world of uncertainty and claim to be believers. Here's an example. Some years ago, a 35-year Jehovah's Witness came to my door. We began to debate a little bit, and I said to him, Sir, if you died tonight, and by the way, an, an actor named Bill Paxton, some of you know that name, he was in uh, uh, what was it, Tombstone and other movies in his early 60s, just died in surgery. So I'm not talking about stuff that, you know, isn't a big deal. We go on with our lives, but you know what? People are dying every day. Here's the point. So I asked this Jehovah's Witness, I said, you've been in this organization 35 years. You've, you've, you have knocked on countless doors. If you died tonight, would you be in heaven? He said, no. I said, why not? Oh, only a certain number. Only the 144,000 get to go to heaven. I'm hoping that after my soul sleep for however long, I will be resurrected. I'm hoping I'm going to make it. And I heard him say, I hope, I hope, I hope I've done enough. And I said, well, what if you've done some bad things? Then I hope that I'll be, fr- I hope I can make it up. I, uh, in fact, he was at my door trying to make things up. Here's what I mean. He goes door to door because if he can get another checklist on his, on his list of things that he did for the kingdom, then hopefully that will outweigh bad things that he did that he may not even know about. And he's at your door, not so much that you would be convinced, but he's pressured to be there so he can do enough good things to make it to the resurrection. Oh my goodness. Now he was standing there, having been a Jehovah's Witness for 35 years, and there was a person next to him that's his little trainee, and I hope that the little trainee was listening. Because... Here you're doing all this stuff and you don't know what makes you clean. The one that makes you clean is, is Christ. What I do is a byproduct of the grace of God. Why I share the gospel is because I've been saved gloriously. Why I show up at church is because I want to be with God's people. And so, he says they profess to know God. The Greek has the idea of a public claim to intimacy with God, but By their deeds they deny him. And notice what has happened to them. They have become detestable. This is God's attitude towards, by the way, idolatry. And disobedient. And they are worthless or unfit for any good deed. So here they have preached a false gospel. And they have become detestable in God's eyes. And they go land and sea. This is what Jesus said to the Pharisees. You go land and sea to make a convert of one person and you make him twice the child of hell as you are. Ouch. Jesus said that? Yes. Because Jesus on the cross said these words and we've got to hear it over and over. It is finished. Paid in full. You can't add to it, folks. It's done. It's over. I'm a forgiven man. I hope that even makes you dance sometimes. Forgiven. Yeah. Right? And what I do, what we do now, we do out of gratitude for all God has done for us. I don't know if I shared this at, first, uh, at this service, but um, I'm going to ask uh, Chris if you guys can come on up. Um, did I share the story about the woman who was set free from the book, by the book of Romans? I don't think I did. 
Okay. So uh, we're, we had a going away little gathering for a, a gal, a sweet uh, lady of Christ, woman of Christ that was moving out of state. And she was involved with our evangelism team. And she, she wanted to share something with me before she moved. And she said, Pastor Michael, uh, I want you to know something that I was set free as you taught the book of Romans at our old location. And I said, explain what you mean. She said, well, you know, as you taught that book, as the word of God went out and I realized more and more my identity in Christ, the yoke of bondage, the performance orientation that I had sometimes been exposed to was lifted off of my shoulders and I realized for the first time that I'm free in Christ. The book of Romans and your teaching of it set me free. I'll tell you what, folks, stuff like that makes me want to just cry. Because that's why Jesus came. If the Son makes you free, you will be what? Free indeed. What we do, we don't do to get salvation. We do it because we are saved. And we are called to godliness, there's no doubt. We are called to be sensitive in situations. Romans 14 tells us, if look, if a brother or sister has an issue with wine or, or meat or anything else that may stumble them, then they're more important to me than any of those things. You don't use your freedom ever as a license for sin, but you realize that you're free in Christ. And what makes you clean is the blood of Jesus and His finished work on the cross. You're going to heaven if you're a Christian. Not based on your performance, but based on the one that you have come to know and trust. Alright? And if you don't know that truth, and maybe I've been speaking to you, and you've, you were reared in a place of legalism and You've carried that weight for your whole life. Can I just tell you to get rid of it? Let Jesus take it off of your back. Trust in Him and Him alone for your salvation. Do what you do out of gratitude. Do what you do by the power of the Holy Spirit because you have a surrendered life. Father, thank You for this precious group. Thank You for their hunger for the Word. Thank You that uh, as Your Word goes forth, I believe it sets us more and more free. More free to be what You want us to be and do what You've called us to do. Thank you for the great hope we have in Christ. Thank you that he satisfied your wrath at the cross in full. He appeased it. Thank you that he lived the perfect life that I could never live. And I have his righteousness and his finished work credited to my account by my faith in Christ. Thank you for that great hope. doesn't matter where we've been, what we've done, how many times we've failed. Christ has paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it as white as snow. If you want to open your heart to Christ, just cry out to Him. In these few moments that we have, something like this. If you're not sure if you died tonight, you would be in heaven. If you're not sure you've trusted Christ, something like this. Jesus, cry out to Him. Save me. Thank you for your death on the cross. Thank you for satisfying God's wrath, your Father's wrath. Thank you for fulfilling the law. I believe... I turn away from my own self-effort, my own sins and mistakes, and I turn to you. I believe in your death and your triumphant resurrection that defeats my mortal enemy death, and I trust you and you alone for my salvation. Change me from the inside out, Lord. Lord, I pray that you just wash over this precious group and encourage their faith, and I pray that in Jesus' holy name. Amen.